I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. Beavers are the unsung heroes of climate action. They have tens of thousands of years of experience in maintaining a healthy ecosystem, reducing the impacts of wildfires, floods, and drought, and restoring our wetlands and rivers. Today's guest, award-winning writer Leela Phillip, says we could use beavers again to help our water problems if we were smart enough. In her new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America, she writes, quote, Throughout history, humans have studied beavers, lodges and dams and canals, their skills at felling and transporting trees, their expertise at engineering. When three or four work together, they can roll a hundred pound boulder and set it in their dam. Perhaps like ants and bees, they have a kind of intelligence that we as humans simply cannot fathom, end quote. Leela Phillip writes about the profound ways beavers and the fur trade have shaped our history, culture, and environment. She also focuses on indigenous stories about beavers and makes connections between the fur trade, violence against indigenous people, and genocide. Leela Phillip is a self-trained naturalist and citizen scientist. She teaches in the Environmental Studies Program at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she's a professor in the English department. She was a Guggenheim Fellow and was a contributing columnist at the Boston Globe. Leela Phillip is the author of award-winning books of nonfiction that chronicle diverse personal journeys. Her latest is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. She spent six years working on this book and says she is still learning about beavers. Beaverland is now out in paperback. In her afterword, she writes that since the book first came out in December 2022, beaver believers have moved from the fringe into the mainstream. She writes that government agencies, federal and state employees, tribal governments, and state legislators are joining nonprofits, scientists, individuals, ranchers, farmers, and other landowners in new partnerships with the shared goal of harnessing what beavers do to help restore river systems and create watershed resiliency. Hi, Leela. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for this beautiful book. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm really thrilled because I'll be coming to California in March to do a Beaverland event uh, for Book Passage. So this is really great to be talking to you now. Well, yes. So for anyone who lives in the Bay Area, Leela will be talking about Beaverland at Book Passage at the Corte Madera store. That's Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. And you can find information at yourcallradio.org. So Leela, you live near a beaver dam in Woodstock, Connecticut, uh, which you saw on a walk one day with your dog. And you say that at that time, you really didn't know much about beavers, but you were just taken with all of this what had once been a swampy area between the trees was now full of water and you say that this was the most one of the most amazing things you've ever seen and at that point you kind of went on this journey and became obsessed with beavers yes i mean you sort of nailed it i and now i can just you have to be careful i can turn beaver geek on you in a minute i (laughs) beavers are so amazing and the more I learn about them, just the more I am amazed. But it really did happen like that. And I, I've, I've thought since I've written the book a lot about this. You know, we, we tend to think of moments of awe, especially in our culture, as being big, you know, bigger and better, like everything else American, that we, we tend to kind of post, you know, posit that way. But for me, moments of awe have often been very quiet. And it was a moment of awe, this I was walking in the woods literally with my dog. She froze and I looked the way she looked. And then suddenly there was this crack. I thought maybe a gun had gone off. It was that loud and that startling. And then I looked and saw that the whole area of the woods that was just had been kind of a a brown swamp was gleaming silver with water, which I thought, wow, that just happened in like two or three days. And then there was this small animal swimming back and forth. And she was so tenacious and clearly completely unafraid of me, this much larger mammal, and just trying to get me to leave. And I thought, this is, this is just amazing. I have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that began this, research project that became a kind of fever dream because 
the more I learned about beavers, uh, the more fascinated I became. And then really the more I started to see our long kind of relationship with beavers, not just here in North America, but in Europe, but particularly in North America, it became a very interesting lens through which to look at our often kind of sad history with colonization. But then before that, um, this incredible long, uh, you know, knowledge base that the indigenous peoples have had here um, that is told through great beaver stories. So on one hand, yes, beavers definitely made America, not just the first economies here through the fur trade, but before that, their role in shaping the rivers that would shape the land. And, you know, we need so badly stories, I think, of hope and resiliency if we're going to face our collective future in this time of climate change. And I think that also was what really got me about beavers. They are so adaptive. They are just incredible animals that build connectivity. They are out there right now repairing our damaged river system for, you know, for themselves, for us, if we can just get out of their way, if we can let them do what they need to do, if we can help them do that work, we are going to be so much better off. If you can describe just what this looks like for those of us who are not familiar with beavers, maybe we, we have seen a beaver dam, but we didn't know that it was a beaver dam. And I watched one of the talks that you gave along with photos of the area near your home and you show this area. It had been a swampy area. And because of the beavers, it was full of water. The water extended a half mile back and became a beautiful pond. And then the pond became a meadow. And you said that you were a little saddened because you wanted to know that the beaver is still there. But that meadow still holds a great deal of water because it acts kind of like a sponge. So can you just describe what this looks like? Because it really is incredible. Yeah, so I guess this is like the sort of the first role that beavers played in making America, which is that um, they really shaped the river system. And we really need to repair our river system if we're going to face all the challenges that we have with an accelerating climate change. And out in California with atmospheric rivers of precipitation and then wildfires, all those problems have to do with water too much water coming down and then rushing out too fast and then not enough water in the land to make it resilient so that it can be um, resilient in the face of things like wildfire. So beavers will come to a creek or a stream and they'll build a dam and swell the water so that instead of a thread of water, you pretty soon have a series of ponds along that creek. Like imagine maybe beads on a chain and that basin of water that you can see is just the beginning because underneath that beaver pond is a, is a sponge under the ground, like an invisible sponge. Imagine that. And that sponge is holding three times as much water as you can actually see. So this is where it becomes really pretty incredible and impactful. So each of those sponges is, when it rains, slowing down, capturing that water, enabling it to recharge in the aquifer, holding water there in the river system so it's there if you get a drought or, you know, we're facing increasing periods of extreme heat. So it means that the stream system doesn't dry up. So it's that big sponge of water there. And imagine 400 million beavers throughout every watershed. Every stream and creek had this system of underground sponges throughout it. And river scientists call this the hyperic zone, this area of underground water and soil. And it plays an incredibly important role in all kinds of levels uh, for the river system. But just in terms of water, it holds it. And then when you get a flood event, that wet sponge is there to absorb water equally. So it may seem counterintuitive, but that same invisible sponge, that wetland is flood control, is actually water storage. So you've got water reserves for drought, you've got flood storage and 
you might think about that sponge as a huge coffee filter. So it's also cleansing the water as it goes down. So nitrogen, phosphorus, pollutants are actually cleansed out of the water. And we've lost 50% of our wetlands since colonization, which is a pretty serious amount of damage to our river system, our, our clean water. So it all every time a beaver is working out there, we should just sing hallelujah, basically, because they're doing such important work for us. You know, well, we have anyway. an amazing video we found, uh, I believe it was from One Planet, showing the beaver biting on the trees and the tree falls. And I mean, it's really incredible. As you write in your book, scientists call beavers ecosystem engineers, meaning they create new habitats, new ecosystems when they build their ponds. So you're talking about flood control, but then when beavers move in, so many other animals move in and beavers bring so much biodiversity to an area. So can you also talk about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really interesting because in the last particularly 10 years, people have started to put a dollar value on what they call the ecosystem services of water. So flood storage, people can put dollar values on that. And I I write about this in Beaverland. There's a study in Milwaukee where they figured out that in one project, if they put beavers in the upper watershed of the Milwaukee River, to make a long story short, within a pretty short amount of time, they would be storing 1.7 trillion gallons of flood storage water. And that amount of water is valued at $3.3 billion. So once people started to put dollar value on the engineering of water storage, which they can do because they've, you know, engineered water storage and they know how much it costs to Leela, are you still with us? I think we might be having some trouble there. Is I'm just asking the studio, is Leela still with us? Um, we should oh. be thinking about each of these wetlands as a kind of... So, sorry, Leela, you just cut out there. Can, oh, can you start sorry. over? Um, from, from where? From Milwaukee or from Coral Reef? Uh, B- Milwaukee. Okay, so out in Milwaukee, um, University of um, Wisconsin, and actually the the sewage uh, department in um, Milwaukee funded a study, and they figured out that they could create water storage utilizing beavers, and within 25 years, they'd be creating 1.7 trillion gallons of flood water storage annually, and that much water storage is valued at $3.3 billion a year, so they're they can put a dollar value on the floodwater storage that beavers create. But to cross over to biodiversity, your question, no one's put a dollar value on it yet. But when they do, it's going to be astronomical because the actual water in a beaver-altered wetland has something like 15 times more plankton in it than wetlands without beavers. And it just cascades up from there, something like 30% more animal and plant species across the board develop in a beaver pond in short order. And this was something that I actually observed very quickly at my own beaver pond. This little quiet swamp where nothing was happening was filled with all kinds of animals and birds within months. And I just, I just was observing that. And then when I learned the science of it, but I really think we need to start thinking about wetlands in North America as our coral reefs and value them in that way. We are so used to thinking about swamps as negative places. You know, we have a long history of filling them in and thinking of them as places as of miasma and negativity um, from our history. And it's so crazy because it's actually those wetlands that cleanse the water. So I don't know how we got so on the wrong track. (laughs) I I love how you put that because we, we do so many shows about coral reefs and we haven't done many shows about wetlands. And it's to your point, we need to spend more time talking about wetlands and the importance of wetlands, especially right now. In the afterword to the trade edition of Beaverland, you have a number of examples of 
action that's being taken across the country. Well, for example, Oregon passed legislation that removes the, quote, predatory status of beavers, meaning they can no longer be killed without a permit by landowners, and the state must document numbers of beavers killed. California passed a statewide initiative to support projects that harness beavers' natural abilities to help protect biodiversity, restore habitat, build fire-resilient landscapes, and restore watershed resiliency. You, you've got so many stories here. So, so talk about the response to your book and how, as you call them, beaver believers are moving from the fringe into the mainstream. Well, I think we have a long way to go, but I think um, different things are coming into play. First of all, I think as I, uh, people are realizing that um, economically, it really makes sense because we're not going to have enough money to have an engineered response to fix all of our water problems. So why not get these highly trained furry engineers out there working for us for free. It just makes sense, right? (laughs) Where you have beavers, why not have them build an eight-acre beaver pond for free that might cost you a million dollars to build? That's one thing. Um, So beavers in the landscape is sort of like putting shutters on your house when you know a storm is coming. It's, It's a climate resiliency strategy. But I think the other thing is there's still a need for more education because there's still a lot of myths about beavers. And I think there's the need for education about how to coexist with beavers because it's not problem-free, right? We live in lowland places where the rivers want to go because we settled along rivers and we've built a lot of infrastructure along rivers and we filled in a lot of areas where we have flooding because we filled in the wetlands and we've got rivers that don't have anywhere to move anymore. So beavers are going to move into those places because they know that that's where the river should be. And so sometimes they bring water where we don't want it. So I think a key thing is teaching people that there are many coexistence strategies. They can use pond levelers to help with the flooding where say a beaver moves in and floods a road Um, culverts can be protected with culvert diversion strategies. But just to go back to California, what's happening uh, where you are, the, you know, California used to be a little bit behind Utah and Oregon and Washington, which, which are the leading states out West, really leading the country in beaver nature-based restoration programs using beavers. But California has shot ahead in since 2022 with your new beaver program. So you've got a management and restoration program. You've got five permanent staff positions, a whole, you know, beaver program at the state level. You've got a working group of scientists, advisory group from other states. You're promoting coexistence. There's $2 million available for funding and really exciting in October you did the first translocation of beavers back into the California watershed in 75 years. And quite significantly, it was on um, the traditional lands of the Maidu mountain people. Um, And those beavers are apparently doing well. I just spoke to people working on that project a couple days ago. And there's, there's also a whole outreach for public education. And this is all being actualized by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So it's really impressive. And I think California is showing other states what can happen when leadership supports um, what on a grassroots level people have been saying all along. And by the way, Oregon just actually passed a bill to also start funding coexistence strategies so that if a landowner has a problem, they can actually get help you know, with with money to address it, to put in a pond leveler. And I think the next step is to help people who might be losing, say, cropland to beaver flooding to have some kind of easements for that, since you can't expect farmers to lose cropland if beavers are flooding. Um, even if it's for the good of the community, they should get some kind of conservation easement for that. And there are people working on on that because you know, we, we give farmers subsidies all the time to set land aside. Why not set land aside for all the positive things that beavers do? Hmm. 
Today we're speaking with Leela Phillip, author of Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Leela says we could use beavers again to help our water problems if we were smart enough. And as you are hearing, in many states, this is happening. So if you have any questions or comments about beavers and what they mean to a healthy ecosystem, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering how many beavers live in North America today, and you write that scientific literature in the U.S. and Canada routinely cite the beaver population to be anywhere from 6 to 20 million, but there have been no comprehensive studies of the population in either country? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really an interesting problem because the beaver as an animal is so understudied. I'm monitoring a beaver site near my house now, which is doing, I mean, the beavers are doing astounding things. And I, um, I keep forwarding that information to mammologists and beaver researchers. And um, I ask these questions like, well, the beavers are doing this. Have you ever seen that? And they're like, nope. So I think our, our data bank of information on beaver, the animal is relatively slim compared to other animals. So now that people want to harness beavers, there's a need for more information about them. But Certainly, there's a need to monitor just population, also to find out how far they travel. Out in Voyagers National Park in um, Minnesota, they're now tagging the beavers to see how far they go when they leave the park. So that will be interesting information. Hmm. When we first learned about your book, Leela, I have to say, the, one of my first questions was, Hmm, a book about beavers. I wonder if she writes about indigenous people. Uh Well, I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised that the first page, your author's note, is about indigenous stories. And you do really an amazing job of weaving in indigenous history. You interview a number of indigenous people in this book. You, You talk about the very violent past, the connections between the fur trade and indigenous violence and genocide. Uh, But first, let's talk about some of these indigenous stories. You write, when I recount the story of Great Beaver here, I do so with thanks to the many indigenous people who for centuries, despite everything, managed to preserve this story and all its many versions and carry it down. Yeah, thank you for that. That was, it was really important to me. And, um, you know, we are learning so much. I'm not a scholar of indigenous studies by any means. Um, And this, this book was really a journey of discovery, but if I have contributed in any way to our, you know, very urgent need to understand more fully our our full American history, I'm, I'm really happy and and grateful for that. But um, it was really interesting to go back and unpack um, the, the history of where I lived in rural Connecticut and discover that so much of what I thought was the history, you know, to, to sort of just unpack it. And I spent a lot of time, as I think, you know, in chapter 12, looking at the history of the stone walls and the indigenous peoples there and that, that very complicated history there, which is too big to kind of unpack in a, in a radio show. But, um, I want to say something about the we that I've been using. You know, when I use the we, I'm using because my my family were Dutch. They came here in the 1600s. And, um, you know, I kind of laugh now. They Now I understand why they came here. They came here clearly for beaver pelts, but of course I never knew that. But, you know, the indigenous peoples who have always been here understood the value of beavers. Uh, and it is communicated in the stories of great beaver that are throughout the continent. So the Algonquin peoples who lived up and down the Atlantic seaboard and into the Great Lakes, and because this book starts in Connecticut and and I have located there, I locate it with a great beaver story set about the Connecticut Valley. And um, it's a really wonderful great beaver story, and it shows the extent um, of indigenous environment science and ecological knowledge that was conveyed in these stories. So the deep understanding of the science of the beaver, the way that beavers were key to water management. And in contrast, the 
peoples who lived in arid high plains like the Blackfeet did not hunt beaver, had, you know, the, the beaver medicine bundle um, is incredibly important uh, part of the religious system of the Blackfeet people. And they understood that in that arid system, beavers controlled the water cycle, which led to grass, which led to bison. And since they were dependent on the bison, it would have been foolish to hunt the beaver. So, you know, very different, um, under, you know, a profound scientific understanding of the grass ecology where they lived. Um, so I think there's a lot of scientific knowledge embedded in these stories, as well as in the great beaver story with which I begin Beaverland. It's also a story about the dangers of hoarding resources. There are a lot of Algonquin stories about that. And I love this story because it's so kind of subversive and it's a teaching story about the dangers of, of hoarding. Um, but in this case, it's the beaver who's mischievous. <laughs> also, it's important to note that Native Americans did hunt beavers. But as you note, Native American cultures, as a rule, upheld strong taboos against not hunting more beaver than could be used. And that use was never enough to drive the beavers toward extinction. And and I think it's also important there is, there's, there's no monolithic Native American anything. There were, you know, peoples plural, who lived throughout this continent with different regional cultures. So um, I just, just want to point that out. So, um, but everywhere that uh, I think so far anyway, research has revealed teachings about the beavers. There were very strict pro protocols about how you would hunt them. And that would slow down the hunting of beaver. It wasn't consumed um, the way it was for the fur trade. So when Europeans arrived and they saw the beaver as this commodity that was needed for its fur, I mean, beaver fur is incredibly thick and lustrous, and it has this barbed fur that makes this incredible felt. So they basically just saw this as an animal that they needed for felt hats. And they didn't see it holistically as part of any kind of ecological system. They just extracted it and tremendous amount of damage was done in that, you know, to the environment of North America and to, um, you know, the, the native peoples who were living here and the, the, the beaver wars that followed um, really, well, it's a lot to kind of talk about in a few sentences, but I, but I, I go into this in the book and it's, you know, the story of the, the American Buffalo and the bison is, mm. is different, but in, in some ways the beaver and the bison had similar trajectories and they were over extracted and um, wiped out. But the beaver is one of the great conservation comeback stories of North America, because in the 1900s, fantastically wonderful efforts were made to bring beavers back and, Thank goodness they were. And it's interesting because one of the most fun efforts, I write about this in the book, um, was in Idaho. They parachute dropped beavers in 1948, 76 beavers uh, in boxes. And they parachute dropped them into these remote locations. And I think, you know, they said they survived, but no one really knew because how could you really follow up? Um, and uh, they said they survived, you know, but... Uh, earlier this year, NASA, which has a not well-known ecological conservation program, actually went back and did satellite search imagery of those places in Idaho. And lo and behold, the places where they dropped the beavers are green refugia. And so they're beaver wetlands. So the beavers thrived and they did what they were meant to do. And those are fire-resilient watersheds now. So that's the other thing we haven't talked about that much, but in California, there's a great awareness that, uh, you know, getting beavers up into the watersheds to create better resiliency for wildfire is important because photographs after the great big, even the big wildfires have shown that where there are beavers and it's been wet, 
the fires have done less damage. There's been pockets of an oasis and those pockets of oasis are critical for after the fire is gone. Those are, that's hydrology so that the area can rebound and things can regrow. The water can be cleansed. Also, uh, beavers got the moniker Smokey the Beaver because there were even bears found, um, you know, fi- taking refuge in beaver wetlands during some of these fires. Hmm. So- Amazing. We're going to take a quick break. Today, we're spending the hour with Leela Phillip. Leela is the author of Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Her book is now out in paperback. And if you're in the Bay Area, Leela will be speaking about her book at Book Passage in Corte Madera on Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. You can find more information at yourcallradio.org. This is Your Calls One Planet series. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will talk about a new documentary called No One Asked You. It's about pro-choice activists touring battleground states in the years leading up to the dismantling of Roe. And then on Wednesday, Dr. Jen Jackson will be here to talk to us about her new book, Black Women Taught Us. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at KALW.org. If you would like to join today's conversation about beavers and the importance of beavers. We're speaking with Leela Phillip, author of Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. If you are in the Bay Area, Leela will be speaking about her book at Book Passage in Corte Madera, Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. Leela Phillip teaches in the Environmental Studies Program at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she's a professor in the English department. Um, She has written many nonfiction books. You can read more about her work at yourcallradio.org. Let's hear from a caller. Let's go to Laura in Santa Cruz. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Laura, are you there? Okay, I think Laura's listening to the, sh- the radio. I can hear it. I'll ask her question. So Laura wants to know, why do beavers build ponds in the first place? Oh, gosh, great question. Sh- uh, should I just weigh in? Yes, please. Okay, so beavers need water because, first of all, they um, are like water farmers. So they eat aquatic plants, and um, they need to build sort of a, a pond that will grow all the aquatic plants that they need to eat. So they only chew down trees and fast growing shrubs and things like that for uh, food when they don't have enough uh, aquatic plants, you know, in the pond. They also are incredibly awkward on land. They need water to swim. They Once they get in the water, they're like seals. They are incredibly deft swimmers, but they, can only move very awkwardly on land. So they really need water to swim around. Um, so they are, you know, they come on land, but they basically live in the water and they build their lodges in the bank or they'll prefer to have a lodge surrounded by water. But if they can't do that, they'll build it in the bank. And literally to get into the lodge, they'll have to dive into the water and come up into the middle and the the lodge is a kind of 
um, iconic teepee shaped structure made of sticks. Um, hopefully some of the listeners have seen one of them and they're, they're really cool. Uh, beavers will make them out of anything they can find, but they prefer to have sticks. So that's when they'll cut down trees and shrubby things to make their lodge or to make their dam. In the video we saw from BBC Earth, I mean, the lodge is amazing. They said that the lodge is made so well that a bear couldn't even break into it. Is that true? Yeah, they really work hard on their lodge. Um, well, it's, you know, it's survival. So because beavers are, um, they're these incredibly weird looking animals. I think they're wonderfully weird, but they've got these adorable bear-like faces. And then they have these nimble hands, uh, paws with five uh, fingers. Uh, they're hairless. And then they've got these goose-like feet and this big paddle tail. And they're just incredibly adaptive for what they need to do, but not much else. So they go on land to get um, building material. They build canals into the woods so that they have transportation systems to carry that woody material through the water so that they have to reduce their time on land. Because otherwise, uh, you know, a coyote, a bear, uh, any kind of predator could pick them off pretty quickly. Wow. It's so amazing. Let, let's share a few beaver facts. I'll, I'll share a few that really stood out in your book and then, and then you can share a few. So as you <laughs> write, no one really understands how much intelligence is involved in this unique activity. No one really knows when they started building dams. Beavers cannot see well. Their primary sense is smell. A beaver uses its nose to locate the cinnamon smell of birch and the licorice tang of aspen. They communicate through scent depositing the castor oil that they produce in two internal glands to mark territory and introduce themselves to potential mates. While the visual area of a beaver's brain is small, a large area of their neocortex is dedicated to processing somatic sensory and auditory stimuli. So many amazing facts. What other facts really stood out for you? Well, I think I, I want to um, say one thing that's really interesting. Um, I write about this researcher, Dr. Jordan Kennedy, who I interviewed when she was still at Harvard. She um, was raised on the Blackfeet Reservation, and she's actually back out in Montana working at Indigenous Lead. She's the lead scientist out there now. She's she's you know graduated from Harvard, and she's doing some really interesting beaver bison research out there. Um, in a project for of indigenous, uh, you know, environmental science project. But she, I think, began to crack the code of beaver intelligence by thinking about not so much the individual beaver, but how beavers are able to work together in a collective way. Mm -hmm. And also by looking at stigmergy, which is uh, the way in which animals respond to environmental cues. So she's really focused on the canal building activity of beavers and think that that actually is one way in which they communicate, which I think is really, really interesting. And nobody has really looked at that before. Um, so anyway, I could say a lot more about her work, but I encourage people to check out Indigenous Lead. Um, one of the facts about beavers that I find so amazing is that baby beavers, their blood chemistry is such that it has so much oxygen that they literally cannot dive. So they're in this lodge, The little they're absolutely the most adorable baby animal I've ever seen. And I'm an animal lover. <laughs> um, so they're, they're kind of in this dry area in the lodge um, and they're tiny and they're very vulnerable to predation. So it would be very difficult for adult beavers to take care of them if they could get out, if they could swim out into the pond. So they've adapted this blood chemistry by which they can, they literally cannot dive down in the water and get out of the lodge until I think about something like four to six weeks when they're big enough and hardy enough to actually probably get away from a threat, which I think is just extraordinary. So it's sort of like they've got a built-in babysitter hmm. um, and then their blood chemistry changes and they can actually dive when they're big enough. I think that's sort of so extraordinary. So amazing. I also loved learning that beavers are herbivores. They eat twigs, branches, sticks, grasses, ferns, water lilies, and other pond weeds. And then also to learn about 
Uh, beaver poop was so interesting. Beavers consume plants, then expel a blackish substance called, is it cototroph? Yeah, I can never pronounce it either. I just, <laughs> I just kind of skip over it. It's pretty <laughs> it too. It's, it's kind of like, like gooey stuff and they reconsume it because, because they're basically getting protein from cellulose, which is very hard to do. And they don't have a second stomach like a cow, so they have to eat everything twice. That's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, they're very, you know, very fine-tuned to con- to get protein out of, you know, tough stuff. But the, the other thing about beavers that I think people, because they're a rodent, and rodents we have a whole set of ideas about, but they're monogamous. Um, hmm. And they take great care of their kits for two years. And another thing that's interesting now that people are actually studying lodges of beavers, they're discovering that uh, the kits will leave after two years, but often they'll come back to their home lodge. We don't quite know why. Did something happen to their mate? It died. Did they not like them? I don't know. They (laughs) will often come back like bungee kids. And then they will be forever aunts and uncles taking care of the kits. Uh, they're, you know, there's their step siblings or whatever you might call them. So there'll be these lodges where there are adult beavers who are genetically related, um, like adult kids who just live there and help take care of the kids. Wow. It's also amazing to think that they have the ability to cut down trees. And we're talking about big trees. Yeah, yeah. They they kind of like they bite and spit out the chips. In fact, there's a chainsaw blade that is designed after a beaver tooth. They have iron in the teeth and then they just don't stop growing. So it's actually a myth that beavers have to always bite down trees to keep their teeth under control. They self-grind like a lot of other rodents. Um, They'll just sit in the quiet time and chew their teeth to keep them under control, but they, they are really sharp. So I think, um, Beavers don't, um, they're not aggressive animals towards humans. They seem to be pretty um, self-contained. And in fact, they, the beaver lodges that I've observed, that people have observed in sanctuary situations, are tremendously affectionate with one another within the lodge. They're territorial to other beavers because they know that there's only a certain amount of food in a woodland pond. So they, they can only tolerate one family there. So you can't just like move into a beaver pond if you're another beaver. There's just not enough food. They will chase that beaver out. But beavers within their own family, they just are not observed fighting. They just seem to have figured it out. And there, there is no alpha beaver. They're not hierarchical, which is also interesting. We don't quite know how they organize themselves, but it's not, they don't have an alpha and a sub-alpha. Today, we're speaking with award-winning author Leela Phillip about her new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. We have a, a few other callers on the line and a few questions via email. So let's hear from Ray in Santa Cruz. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. That's a great, great guest you have on there. Leela, thank you for doing this book. I read a book uh, a few years ago called Eager Beavers, uh, Why They Matter. And it was just totally fascinating. <laughs> it's amazing what beavers can do. Um, and, and I like that you, uh, so I, I really want to, I'm going to pick up your book for sure. Um, but I like how you tied in the Native Americans and, the, uh, and, and their, uh, you know, relationship to earth and beavers and buffalo. And I want to give a quick shout out to the Buffalo Field Campaign. Uh, who's keeping uh, the last remaining wild buffalo alive coming out in and out of Yellowstone. But the reason I'm calling is I want to ask you if there is a group or an agency of any sort who could do like a survey to see if uh, a property is uh, is possible to reintroduce um, beavers into. Because I live at kind of a headlands of a creek that I I have an idea that might be a good place for them. Well, I think, you know, out east here, there is the um, Beaver Institute, which has um, 
national working groups. And they're a great resource to connect with because they have working groups that probably connect you to someone out in your area. Um, I know there's a group out in um, Santa Barbara and also there's um, at Occidental Arts and Education Center, uh, there's a group, they actually, the Bringing Back the Beaver campaign um, in Sonoma, um, Kate Lundquist and um, her colleague Brock Dolman out there, uh, they'd be great resources. So you could you could certainly get in touch with the Beaver Institute or Occidental, and I bet they could help you out. And you could also get in touch with me if you wanted, and I could try to connect you with someone. Well, thanks so much for the call, Ray. Erica couldn't stand the line, but she wanted to know, can beavers and humans coexist respecting each other's property rights? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think a beaver is going to think about anyone's property rights. They're going to bring water where they think it should be. And so it can be a conflict because we've often built where um, in low land areas. So sometimes beavers are going to bring water where it can't be because we have a house, we have a septic, we have a water resource. So in those instances, sometimes beavers have to be relocated if the water can't be contained. So I think it is, you know, coexistence is a um, case by case situation. And I think sometimes there are irresolvable conflicts and, you know, we're not going to move Hartford. We're not going to move San Francisco, right? We're not going to move major roads. But the sad fact is that we put in a lot of our infrastructure just thinking about what we wanted and not thinking about the river system at all. Mm. And now with accelerating climate change, you know, we need to think about restoring river function. And sometimes I think that's going to mean where we can make a different choice Maybe we move our soccer field, you know, just because we had it in a low area. Maybe we move it somewhere else and we let that soccer field flood. That's maybe an easy one. The hard one is someone's septic. You know, we can't let that flood. So, yeah, beavers are not going to pay attention to anyone's property rights. That's for sure. Speaking of climate change, how is the climate crisis affecting beavers? You write that beavers are remarkably resilient with climate change warming large areas of the Arctic tundra. Beavers have recently been photographed at night climbing the North Ridge in Alaska, practically scaling cliffs to get to the marshy areas on the other side. Yeah, well, um, I think it's it's an interesting question. I've been in I'm in dialogue with a couple of places out east where Beavers have actually done some new and very interesting things that they haven't done before to some of the beaver um, uh, deceivers. That you know the, the code word for a pond leveler is the beaver deceiver. And in one site I went to look at a couple weeks ago, uh, the beavers did something really interesting, and um, everybody was just noticing that they had never done that before. And I'm sort of wondering if they aren't adjusting to the weird weather we've had for the last two years. Mm -hmm. We had basically no winter. And then we had this incredible um, weather whiplash last summer where we had these just intense scalding rain events, which we get in the East. And then we had drought. So um, kind of versions maybe of what you're having out in California, but in a different, you know, iteration, but still a, a kind of weather whiplash where the stream system, because it's not, working properly the water is is we've got terrible flood events and then the water is going out and we don't have enough water so we have too much water and then not enough water and then too much heat so the animals have to be responding to that too but i think just if i may um this is something i mentioned in my afterward it was incredible to me to realize that we've dammed up so many of the world's rivers we've actually you know we've stored water in so many places where it didn't used to be that we've actually changed the length of a day on earth. I mean, this is pretty incredible. If you think about that, that we've literally altered the rotation of the planet. And mm -hmm. as a result, every day is a few microseconds shorter. And my, and my point is we have really awe inspiring technologies that we've developed, but what we haven't learned yet is 
to live on our planet sustainably. So we've literally reshaped our planet before we've learned how to live on it. And I think we're in this interesting moment where it's just going to be hard for us to learn that we can't have it all. You know, we can't have everything that we've been used to having and thrive. You know, if we, we've got, you know, nature is showing us its power, you know, you had what 31 atmospheric river storm events last year. I think um, that's a lot to deal with. And so I, I think we're all kind of adjusting to this new moment where we have to think differently and it's not easy, but I think we can do it. You're right, Leela. I mean, we've been in a drought here in California for years and we've had so much rain just in the last month. I mean, flood yeah. warnings. I got I, I got text last night about power outages, flood warnings. I mean, LA is getting slammed right now. Yeah, and so it really comes back to needing to restore this river system that mm. um, needs to function properly to absorb, slow down, hold all that water. You know that we need. And beavers are part of a healthy river ecology. So in a way, you kind of need to back up a step, which is why in the new version of the book, I wrote a lot about water and rivers. And I'm actually working on a new book about rivers now. Because, you know, what the indigenous peoples understood is that beavers were part of a healthy river ecology. They were part of the bigger picture, which is why it didn't make sense to take them out. Hmm. But we came, we wanted their fur, we took them out. And now, you know, luckily the light bulb went on and we're returning them. But we also need to realize that that's, it's part of a bigger picture of helping restore the river system. And, and that's really their value to us. I mean, they're fantastic animals and they bring biodiversity and they help us with all our water problems. And I think, you know, just kind of for selfish reasons of survival, we need beavers. Mm. Um, you know, and I and and I think it just resets our kind of relationship with with where we are. Leela Phillip is an award-winning author. Her latest book is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. If you're in the Bay Area, Leela will be reading from her book at Book Passage in Corte Madera, Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. Leela, I feel like we we just scratched the surface. We weren't really able to go into the fur trade. And then the indigenous history that you bring up is so important. So we'd love to have you back maybe right before your event. Oh, I would love that. And I also want to say that uh, moderating my event is a wonderful writer, Rosanna Shaw, who's written a fantastic book and knows a lot about the history of indigenous peoples in California. So that would be fantastic. Yes, we would love that. We've had Rosanna on a few times. So thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can learn more about Leela's work and the reading at yourcallradio.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.